0: So imagine this, it's seven AM on a beautiful Sunday morning. We haven't seen one of those in a while, but seven AM on a beautiful Sunday morning and your alarm has just gone off and You reach over and give it a slap and give yourself permission to snooze for nine more minutes because it's a Sunday morning. So then it goes off at 7.10 and you roll out of bed. You head downstairs, you start your pot of coffee, which every good Christian should do on Sunday morning. You know, that's just the right way to get your heart in alignment with worship. So you start your pot of coffee and you make yourself a breakfast and you start to plan out the rest of your Sunday So you decide, you know, you're going to go to church at 10 in the morning. Afterwards, you're going to grab lunch with uh, some family members. And then that afternoon, you're going to go down to the beach and play volleyball with some friends. Because in this fantasy, you actually get to live in Hawaii. So beach volleyball is a thing even in February. Your perfect day is planned, you get your breakfast, you're out on the porch, the busy streets are always quiet on Sunday mornings, you're enjoying your time, you've got your day planned, and it's not even 8 a.m. yet. But then about 7.55, your tranquil, peaceful morning is suddenly thrown into great confusion because emergency alarms are going out throughout the entire island. As you look off in the horizon, you see... Uh, clouds of black smoke starting to raise into the atmosphere and you're frantically running around trying to figure out what in the world is going on. And as you turn on some news, as you turn on the radio and start to listen, you realize that 18 of the warships that are over in the harbor have been sunk and the entire island is thrown into mass confusion just like that. That's talking about the day that... uh, Pearl Harbor was struck. And as you read through the newspapers over the next few days, every single headline is asking the same question. How did this happen? How did this happen? How was the American naval base so caught off guard and taken down with one punch? How in the world were we so unprepared? And there were a variety of reasons for that. The generals knew that a war was imminent, but they wrongly believed that the Philippines were going to be the target of attack rather than Hawaii. Not only that, a lot of the precautions because they thought this particular base was safe, a lot of the emergency precautions of having flight patrols out around the clock, they had stopped doing because they thought that was superfluous and unnecessary. Not only that, there was a guy named Private Elliot that morning who was working overtime on the radar screens and he saw some things coming across the screen, but he Uh, radioed over to his lieutenant, and the lieutenant said, don't even worry about it. There's a group of B-17 bombers that are flying in. It's not a problem. Even worse, the torpedo nets weren't out in the harbor because they believed that the water was too shallow for any torpedo to pierce under and be able to make contact with the boats. They were totally unprepared. The enemy delivered a substantial blow because Pearl Harbor was... Unprepared to respond to the attack. You know, in that moment, the military kind of forgot one of the rules of warfare. You always have to be prepared to be surprised. That's kind of the You have to be prepared to be surprised. You have to hope for the best, but plan for the worst. And tonight, I want us to think about that concept when it comes to a different war, a war that we are all a part of, because whether or not we realize it, every single person in here is part of a war. We're part of an invisible spiritual war that is happening each and every day, and the stakes are high. The war is a war really over our spirit, our soul, and our allegiance. And here's the thing, even though we don't know when or how our enemy is going to try to attack us, we know that he will try to attack. We know that the attack is coming, and therefore we need to be prepared to be surprised. And that's really our big idea for the night. We need to be prepared to be surprised. As Christ followers who are in the midst of this spiritual war, we recognize that we have to always be on guard for a surprise attack from the enemy. Peter, when he was writing about this spiritual war and our enemy in the fifth chapter of his epistle, how does he refer to Satan, our spiritual adversary? He says that we need to be sober-minded. We need to be watchful because our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour resist him. Peter says, be sober-minded, be vigilant, be prepared. Even though you don't know when he's going to attack, you know he will, and you need to be ready to respond. So tonight, as we continue on with our conversations, conversation with the king, that's our series, we're going to have a different conversation. It's a conversation that Jesus had with Satan. So it's a little bit different than the ones we've gone through so far, but tonight we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 4. And we're gonna look at this famous showdown between Satan and our Savior. So, why don't you open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, and we will read verses 1 through 11 together. It says this Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and he set him up on the high pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you really are the son of God, then throw yourself down for isn't it written that he will command his angels concerning you? And not only that, isn't it written that their hands will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone? And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, "Begone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. In this passage, we see one of the most interesting conversations in all of Scripture. We see a conversation literally between Satan and Jesus. We get to listen in on this conversation. And in this passage, we get to see some of the tactics that our spiritual enemy deploys But we also get to see some of the defenses that our Savior also deployed to protect himself. And in the end, who's victorious? Jesus is. Jesus is victorious. Jesus passes his testing in the wilderness when so many other people had failed in the wilderness before him. He chose to remain faithful to his father. And as we unpack this text tonight, we're going to see three principles that will help us be prepared to be surprised, that will help us in our spiritual struggle against our spiritual enemy. So let's think about our first principle. Here's our first point that we're going to unpack. We need to know Satan's go-to tactics for temptation. We need to know Satan's go-to tactics for temptation. What does Paul write in 2 Corinthians 2? Paul writes in verse 11, in order that Satan might not outwit us for not, we are not unaware of his schemes. So if you were to reverse the order of what Paul's saying there, he says, if we are ignorant of Satan's schemes, guess what's going to happen? He's going to outwit us. He's going to fool us. He's going to trick us. He's going to be able to pull us down and pull us into sin. We are in a spiritual battle with a cunning spiritual enemy. One of his nicknames is the deceiver. And if we want to be victorious, we can't be ignorant of his tactics. We have to be prepared for what he has in store for us. And thankfully, Scripture is filled with a lot of really good reconnaissance about how our enemy functions. God gives us a lot of intel for how the enemy operates and how we can best prepare ourselves against him. And in this particular passage, we're going to hone in on one aspect of that spiritual warfare tonight. There's a lot of different aspects, but tonight we are going to hone in on Satan's tactic of temptation. It's one of his favorite tactics, tempting us to sin. And at its most basic level, temptation is essentially the intentional enticement of a person to disobey God's revealed will. So it's the intentional enticement of trying to get you to disobey what God has revealed through his perfect law, through scripture, but also through the conscience that he's given to every single person throughout the entire world. Satan is trying to get us through temptation to reject the idea that God's way is good and life-giving, but instead view God's way as something that is restrictive, antiquated, and really robbing us of true joy and happiness and satisfaction. Temptation has been one of Satan's favorite go-to tools since the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. What did he do with Adam and Eve? One of the big things they did was tempt them. He tempted them with something that was appealing, something that called out to their flesh. He tempted them with knowledge to be like God. And in this particular passage, he goes and tempts the second Adam, hoping he can get him to fall just like he did the first Adam. And as we dissect this encounter, we're gonna see three important takeaways, insightful takeaways about temptation. So here's the first one, point, the first kind of subpoint under that. We see that strong temptation oftentimes emerges during two seasons, two seasons of life. One right after spiritual success, and the other when we are physically and emotionally vulnerable. Those are two seasons when we see heightened temptation. First of all, notice the preceding context of our passage tonight. Notice what just happened before this passage picks up. Jesus has just gone down to the River Jordan and he has been baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. And as he's coming out of the water, what happens? God literally speaks, right? God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is getting ready to turn on full messianic mode, right? He is gearing up for his ministry where he is gonna go into a very broken and dark nation and spiritual revival is gonna take place and he's gonna begin sharing the truth. Satan doesn't really like when that happens. He doesn't like when spiritual ripples are being made through a culture or through a community, So what he wants to do is take Jesus down before the ministry ever even happens. Satan wanted to make sure that this revival wouldn't happen. He likes hearts that are hard and he wants them to stay that way. He wants people not to be sensitive to the working of the spirit. And most of all, he wants the spiritually strong to experience moral failure and therefore extinguish the effectiveness of their witness. Why do you think it is that we so many times see people who are kind of pillars in the Christian community take a moral fall? I think a lot of the time it's because they weren't being vigilant of temptation and because they have a target on their back that Satan is throwing every dart he has at them because of the impact that it has when someone falls. And because of that, I think we need to realize the more that we grow in our sanctification the harder temptation oftentimes gets not always the easier the further along we go in the christian life the more incre the more he's going to keep dialing up the knob to get us to fall when i was reading through this passage it kind of reminded me of one of my favorite <clears throat> Disney Pixar movies from when I was a kid, The Incredibles, right? Everyone's seen The Incredibles. What happened when the, the villain syndrome, he would call these superheroes to his island to battle his robot, right? And what happened whenever the robot got defeated? Would he give up? No. He would build a stronger robot that would then defeat the person then, and then he'd keep building a stronger robot, a stronger robot until it was going to take down anything that came in his path. That's kind of how Satan is. When we have a victory, guess what he does? He doesn't go, oh, man, I'm done. I give up. They're just too good. What does he do? He says, okay, I'm going to crank up the dial a little bit. Let's see if you can handle this temptation, right? The, the person that comes home from the gym and they've successfully avoided looking with lustful eyes, they turn on TV and watch the first commercial. Something that's, that's totally immoral. The the husband that comes back from no regrets and says, I am gonna be a better and more patient father. That's the moment when one of their kids decides to go off the rail and be rebellious. The, The person who says, you know what? I'm going to prioritize spending more time with God and more time with my family and more time with him on the weekends. That's the time when work becomes just overwhelming and more and more things get flung on their desk. Right after you get serious about committing to being sober on the weekends and cutting out maybe that extra alcohol, that's the moment a friend has tickets to the Packers game and invites you and you know what's gonna be waiting there when you arrive. Satan will oftentimes strike hardest when we're most determined to serve the Lord. A lot of the times in a moment of spiritual victory, after spiritual success, what do we do? We kind of like take a spiritual Nap on the couch. We're like, okay, I've been doing good. I can let down the guard. I've been doing really good. I can let the spiritual discipline, discipline slack a little bit. I've earned a little bit of a break. And that is not the moment to lessen up. That's the moment to make sure we are guarding ourselves because that's the moment that Satan will most strike. But you know, we also see a second moment when temptation is likely, when we're most physically and emotionally vulnerable. Notice when Satan comes to tempt Jesus. Now, it's a little clunky in the English, but in the original language, it talks about he came to Jesus right after 40 days of him being at an all-inclusive resort on the islands of the Mediterranean after he's well-rested and fat, right? No, no, that's, that's not what it says. Please don't. No, it doesn't say that at all. That's maybe a different version, but that's not what the scripture, what, what, when does he come? After 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. Alone, in the wilderness. The Judean wilderness is not a fun place to be. It's dry, it's hot, it's miserable. He's been alone fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus is isolated and he's hungry. Physically speaking, Jesus is at his most vulnerable. And that's when Satan likes to strike. In that sense, Satan is a lot like a wolf. Do you know how a wolf oftentimes will 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 hunt. They will follow around a pack of elk or deer or whatever else it is and they'll follow it for miles at a time sometimes and they'll be watching for the one member of the pack that is the weakest. The one that's old, the one that's sick, the one that's a little bit slower and then they wait until they can separate it from the pack and then they make their strike and go after the one that's physically weakest. Satan likes to do the same thing. He likes to wait for when we're most vulnerable and at our weakest. And then he likes to attack and try to bring us down. And you know, I think that there are at least three different moments when we're kind of at our weakest. There's probably a lot more, but there was three that I thought of. One is when we're feeling especially alone or lonely. We can be most tempted to sin when we're feeling, when we are alone or when we're feeling lonely. When we think no one's gonna know what I do, no one's here to see it. Or we think to ourselves, no one would even care if I did this are especially tempted when we feel alone or lonely. But not only that, second of all, we are most vulnerable when we are not at our physical best. When we're hungry, when we're tired, when we are sick. Have you ever heard of being hangry? Right? Just be in the office with Satan. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. But have you ever heard of being angry? Have you ever heard of, you know, uh, fall? have you ever experienced a, a heightened temptation on a night when you just couldn't seem to sleep? And out of nowhere, a temptation seems to arise. Or have you ever noticed that when we're physically sick or lethargic, we tend to be spiritually lethargic as, as well? And then third, I think we're also vulnerable when we're away from home and in the wilderness. Right? Whether it's we're away on a business trip, we're away from our family, we're on vacation, we're away at college, for some of you college students out there, when we're off in the wilderness, a lot of the times that can be a season when we are most vulnerable to attack. Which means we need to take a hard look at our lives and say, what are the moments that we are leaving ourselves vulnerable to a fiery dart of the enemy, If it's loneliness, maybe you need to seek out a mentor or consider getting a Christian roommate, right? If it's physically, maybe you need to consider a better workout routine, getting more sleep, whatever it is, what are those areas where we are leaving ourselves vulnerable to the attack of the enemy? You know, here's a second thing that we learn about how Satan tempts us. Here's a second thing. Temptation is oftentimes the distortion of something good into something evil by rejecting God's instructions for how to use it. Satan's not very original. He's not very good at coming up with things on his own. He just likes to plagiarize what God has done and make a distorted version of it. That's really how he operates. So we even think about in, in the book of Revelation where it talks about uh, there's Satan, there's the Antichrist, and there's the false prophet. He kind of makes a false replica of the Trinity. He, he's always trying to rip off what God does and make a false, perverted version of it. And he does the same thing even in this passage. He tries to take good gifts that God has given and turn them into evil things. Notice the first thing that he uses to tempt Jesus. It's food. It's food. Jesus has just fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And verse two tells us that he's hungry. I think that is the uh, understatement of the century, right? I, I don't eat for an hour and I'm hungry, right? He hasn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. He has to be on the verge of starvation. He is extremely hungry. And in that moment, Satan comes in and he tempts him with food. Jesus is desperate for nourishment. His stomach is roaring out to be fed. Now, here's my question. Was it wrong for Jesus to eat in that moment? Was it sinful for Jesus to eat bread? Is this scriptural support that gluten is of the devil? Is that the takeaway from this passage? No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's, it's not. There's nothing inherently sinful about food. Food is a good gift from God. So if that's not the problem, what's the real problem? Well, Satan was trying to use a good thing, food, that Jesus needed in that moment to tempt Jesus to do something wrong, to use his messianic power for his own benefit instead of trusting in God's provision and God's timing. Satan was saying, if God really loved you, he would have give, given you some food by now. You need to just use your, use your powers right now to bring you some bread and just don't wait on God's timing and God's provision. Do it your own way. Trust in your own strength. Jesus was tempting, or Satan was tempting Jesus to take matters into his own hands instead of trusting God's provision and his timing. Satan was saying, you know, instead of being a a messiah that obeys the father and does whatever he wants and tries, why don't you just be a self-serving messiah? Use your powers to do what you want. Make your life better. Make your life more comfortable. Jesus, you deserve it. You have the power. What's wrong with doing that? Satan is tempting Jesus with the sin of pride and self-sufficiency. He's saying, you don't really need God. You can do it all by yourself. And doesn't that sound familiar in our lives as well? He hits us with that one all the time. You don't really need God. You don't have to pray about this. You're strong enough. You're fine. You can do it. You're you're smart enough. Just trust in yourself. You're good. Prided self-sufficiency. Second, Satan uses a promise of God to tempt Jesus. Look at verse six. Satan is quoting what there? Okay, we're, we're good. I, I'm, I'm just gonna wait here till I get it. Satan's quoting what there? The Bible, script. there we go. The Bible, scripture, the book, of, the book of Psalms, right? He's reciting a messianic psalm that's about Jesus and he's saying, you know, God, God said all these, there's a promise that you're not gonna, why don't you just test God and make him prove it? Why don't you jump off this temple and, and show us that it really would happen, that you're really the Messiah? What Satan's doing there is saying, you need, you, need to make sure, you need to test God and, and make him prove himself to you to show that he really deserves to be trusted. Do you think Jesus knew that God was for him? Absolutely. Had God been for Jesus his entire life? Absolutely. Had God already spoken to Jesus just 40 days earlier at his baptism and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased? Absolutely. But Satan wanted Jesus to commit the same sin of unbelief that the Israelites committed in the wilderness centuries earlier. All throughout the Exodus, what did the Israelites demand more of? Evidence from God, right? They wanted more evidence that God was on their side. They always wanted more proof before they were willing to do anything. And in one specific instance at Massah, there was no water and they were really angry. And they demanded that Moses give them water to drink right then. And verse seven of that chapter numbers tells us that they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So what the Israelites are saying after God is, sent 10 plagues to free them from Egyptian slavery. After God has parted the Red Sea and proven himself faithful, after God has been leading them with a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night, the Israelites are saying, you know what? We don't really know if we can trust God yet. He needs to prove himself again. He's given us his promises, but let's test him to make sure that he really will live up to what he says. And that's what Satan's tempting Jesus to do. He says, God gave this promise, but test him, make sure it works out. Put God to the test. You don't really know if you can trust him or not. What Satan is tempting Jesus to believe here is the sin of doubt and disbelief. Doubt and disbelief. Yeah, God's been faithful in the past, but what if he's not this time? How do you know God's really for you? Have we ever been tempted to feel the sin of doubt and disbelief? How many times has God been faithful in our lives and then when we come to the next trial, what's our first response? Will God really get me through this time? We go right back to doubt and disbelief. And that's what Satan's trying to get Jesus to do. He says, no, no. I, I refuse to allow you to tempt me in that way. I will trust in my father. Third thing that we see, third thing that we see, Satan used a good goal with a sinful shortcut. In verse 8, Satan shows off all the kingdoms of the world to Jesus. He probably took him to Egypt and show, showed him the great pyramids. He took him over to Rome and showed him all the grandeur and splendor. He took him to the Greek islands and showed off their sandy beaches. He said, all of the kingdoms of the earth can be yours. Just a little caveat, just something just small, small, fall down and worship me first. You know, that, that's it, Jesus. That, that's it. Just a little caveat there. Now, here's the thing. Was it right for Jesus to want to be the ruler over all the kingdoms of the earth? Yes, yeah, right? Every prophecy in the Old Testament was pointing forward to a king who would reign reign eternally on David's throne. He knew that he deserved to have all of the kingdoms of the world. That That was a good goal. He knew that he needed to have that. But here's the thing, Satan wanted him to get it in the wrong way. He wanted him to take a shortcut to get there. Because Jesus, according to Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. And what that means is Jesus knew that the path to the crown went through the cross first. Jesus knew that his enthronement first met his crucifixion. He couldn't get that ordering out. He had to save the world before he could be the king of the world. And Satan's saying, why don't you just forget the crucifixion why don't you just forget the agony? Why don't you just forget all of that nasty, nasty stuff and you can just jump right forward to the throne? Just take a shortcut and I'll get you there. Your father, why, your father wants you to die. I want you to reign as king. Trust in me. He wanted him to go after a good goal by doing an evil way. He tempts Jesus to seek after good things but in disobedient ways. Satan loves to tempt us with distortions of good things. I think that's why so many times temptation can be so hard. He loves to take a good thing and distort it into something evil by saying, do it my way rather than God's way, right? Just think about the good gifts in our life that, God, that Satan perverts. God has given us the good gift of rest and relaxation. Sabbath is a command by God, right? That he gave us a Sabbath day for rest. But what happens when we pervert that and turn it into our own our own sinful way. It turns into the sin of laziness, overindulging in that rest and relaxation. God has given us the good gift of food, but what does that turn into? Gluttony when we overindulge the good gift that he's given us. God has given us the good gift of material blessings, but it becomes sin when we give into the love of materialism. God has given us the good gift of work, Work doesn't always feel like a good gift, but it is. It predates the fall. Work is not a result of the fall. There will be probably work in eternity. He gives us the good gift of work, but work becomes sinful when we become workaholics. God has given us the good gift of sexual intimacy, but it becomes a bad thing when we go outside the bounds of marriage and do it in our own way. God has given us the good gift of even having governing and authority to help keep order, but it becomes a bad thing when people use that to grab power and to abuse and oppress people. God's given us the good gift of technology, but it becomes sin when we become addicted to distraction. We have to guard against Satan trying to scheming to use God's good gifts against us. God has graciously given us a lot of amazing things in our life. God is not this Scrooge of a God who doesn't want us to enjoy the things that he has given us. No, he has, but he's also given us the right way in his word for how those things are to be enjoyed. And we have to remember that God knows better than we do and than our sinful, broken flesh. We have to reject the lie when Satan whispers in our ear that we need to do things our way because it's so much better than God's way. And that brings us to a third thing that we learn about temptation as well. Satan will oftentimes try to disguise sin as something that's, you know, really, really not not that bad. (laughs) He tries to get us to minimize our sin. Satan does that. He tries to disguise it as something that's harmless or really not that bad or it's, it's not that terrible. Just think of how he tempted Jesus. He tempts him with bread. Of course you deserve to eat bread. He tempts him with just a little magic trick. It's not that big. I'm not asking you to do anything uh, terribly immoral. Oftentimes, he tries to tempt us with things that at first maybe don't seem that bad and that we can try to justify to ourselves. Even think about him promising the kingdom to Jesus. Do you think Jesus in that moment might have been tempted to think that the ends would justify the means? Jesus has been around the world for a while. He'd been around in the world for 30 years. He had seen the oppression. He had seen the brokenness. He had seen the evil. And Jesus could think, in this moment, I could set this all right. I could be the good king. I could fix all of the brokenness. I could take that shortcut and be the king that the world needs. The end might justify the means of just all all I have to do is bow down and worship Satan. Trade my soul for the scepter, right? That's kind of what he's thinking there. How many of us have been tempted to think that the end's justify the means for sin in our life. You know what? It's not that big of a deal if I cheat on this paper because I really need the A in this class and that's going to get me a degree and I need to provide for my future family one day. And, and God wants me to be successful. It's not that big of a deal. Or maybe, you know, you know every, I, I need to flatter my boss. Everyone has to, you know, just kind of say things that aren't true to try to get on his good side. That's the only way to get promotion. And I, I just got to kind of, yeah, I'm, I, I know I'm kind of a flattering guy, but I, I want people to like me because that's how you make a heads up in the world. Maybe it's lying to a spouse. I know I need to come clean about something that I did, but that's just going to cause them more pain. So really it would be unloving for me to talk about that with them. And the loving thing to do is just to pretend like it never happened. And I just, I should lie to my spouse about this. I don't want to hurt, I don't want to hurt them. Maybe it's a pastor who's involved in some type of secret sin. And they say, but look at how much ministry I'm doing. God must be pleased. Look at all the blessings he's putting in my life. So therefore it's really, it's really not, not that big of a deal. In this second temptation that Satan throws towards Jesus, he's even more deceptive. Satan tries to misapply scripture to convince Jesus that it's okay to sin. He quotes scripture. Satan disguises sin as something that he's trying to pretend is actually God's will. He says to him, You know, Jesus, isn't is written this? Doesn't God really want you to do that? It's okay. The Bible says so, it's fine. But Jesus rebukes him and says, you're not really quoting scripture the right way right now, are you? He rebukes him and puts scripture in its proper context. How many times have we been tempted to allow a misreading of scripture to justify sin that we're in? Do you think we live in a culture that likes to manipulate scripture to say whatever they want it to say? Oh, absolutely. We see this in our culture all the time. Just think about a historical example. How many centuries did people try to use scripture and abuse scripture to say slavery was a good thing in America? They said slavery is a gracious thing that God wants, right? A historical example of misapplying scripture in heinous ways. But how about a husband who misapplies Ephesians 5 to be an abusive tyrant in his household? He says, well, I'm in charge. That's what Ephesians 5 says. He's just a jerk, an angry person. How about a current candidate for president who said the Bible is silent on the issue of abortion? He said, actually, the Bible many times says that life begins with breath. So I really think the Bible says abortion is fine. It's, it's silent on the issue. We can't make a definitive judgment on that. How about someone that says, doesn't the Bible say judge not? Who am I to share the gospel with someone else and tell them they're wrong? I'm just trying to, I, I, who am I to judge that other person? This week as I was going through Instagram, one of my former students in California had posted a picture, and she said that uh, she was coming out as in a relationship with uh, another gal, and she said that um, God is love, and God has given her a love for another woman, so who is she to deny the gift of love that God has given her to express to other people? So God is love, so that means any way that I, I express my love is what God most desires. Our hearts are deceptively wicked. And even we can even try to use scripture to justify what we want to do. But we have to make sure that we are planted in God's word. We are planted in God's word and ready to rebut those temptations. So that's the thing. We see the tactics of the enemy. We see the tactics of the enemy here. And knowing his strategy is half the battle. But we, after we understand his strategy, we also need to learn from Jesus' example for how to defend ourselves. And that's the second thing that we see in this passage. We need to rely on our ally. We need to rely on our ally. We are not alone in our battle for unrighteousness. At any moment that we are feeling like we're tempted beyond our ability, God has given us the power to call in reinforcements. He's given us the power to call on the name of Jesus. I just want us to consider two passages out of Hebrews Hebrews chapter two, verses 17 and 18 says this. Therefore, he being Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let's hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Matthew 4 is a vivid demonstration of these texts. Jesus, as a human being, as a fully man person, as he went through life, it wasn't a cakewalk to say no to sin. He actually experienced temptation. And you know, sometimes I think we trivialize that and minimize that and think that Jesus was on autopilot and that it was always just easy because he was fully God. But Jesus felt the full temptation. It says in here, he suffered from that temptation. He knows exactly what it's like. Which means that he sympathizes with our weakness. And in moments when we're tempted to think, oh, God must be so disgusted and angry with me for being tempted in this way. He could never understand. He would never love me. Jesus is saying, No, I, I understand what it's like to be tempted. But tempted is not the same as sin. I overcame it, and so can you. I'll give you the strength. Jesus sympathizes with our weakness. Sometimes we might be tempted to think, well, you know what? Jesus really doesn't understand what full temptation is like because he never gave in to sin. How would he know what it's like? That's really not a very, that's really a rather foolish way to think about it. Because think about this way, think about this way. There's a guy, a boxer named uh, Rocky and not the movie, okay? It's not the movie. This is the Rocky that the movie was based on off of. And Rocky was considered to be one of the best boxers alive. Over his career, he participated in 49 fights. Do you know his record? 49 and 0. He's the only boxer to ever go undefeated in the ring. He's considered one of the best boxers of all time. Now, let's say that you're an aspiring boxer in the 50s who's just getting your butt kicked up and down the ring every time you go in, right? You just throw in the towel. You quit because you can't handle the pain. And you get a day to go train with Rocky. Rocky's invited you over to his gym. And you show up and you're sitting down and you have a conversation and Rocky's trying to coach you. And you say, you don't get it. You don't understand what it's like to take a beating in the ring. You've never lost. And he's like, I've never lost because I've never given up when I've taken the beating. I've taken more shots. I've taken more hits than anyone ever. I'm the only one that's not fallen down. Of course I know what it's like. And that's how how Jesus is. Even though he never fell down in the ring, that doesn't mean he doesn't sympathize with what it feels like to take a hit. And Jesus is there to be our coach. He wants to turn our losing record into a winning record. He wants us to have a knockout when it comes to sin, not to keep pushing my metaphor too far. He wants us to be victorious, but that means that we have to execute a winning battle plan. We have to execute a winning battle plan. That's our third and last thing that we see tonight. We have to execute a winning battle plan. I'll be real quick with this, just like two minutes. We see a couple of different things that Jesus did in this passage to have a winning battle plan. The first was this. He, combat, he combated the lies of the enemy with the life-giving law of the Lord. When he was tempted time and time again, what did Jesus do? He went back to God's word immediately. And what Jesus is showing was that he was a young man that was steeped in scripture. Since a young age, he had been living out what the psalmist said, I have hid your word in my heart, O Lord, that I might not sin against you. So when the when the enemy was coming in and saying, isn't it okay if you do these things? He said, no, it's not, because here's what God says. We have to be students of the word. We have to memorize God's word in our heart. That's the only way that we don't sin against him. And notice that when Satan tempted him, he went to God's word immediately. That wasn't his last resort. How many times do we just try to do a variety of other things when we're tempted? We just try to change our mind. We think, I'll think about something else or we tried to just ignore it or we do all these things, but we don't have that truth on hand ready to bring back and articulate and say, no, I can't give in to this because this is what God says. We need to make sure that we're hiding God's word in our hearts. What scripture have you memorized for your particular sin struggle? Have you memorized any scripture to have on hand in your particular sin struggle? Because that's so important. Here's the second thing. We have to be continually cultivating intimacy with God. Jesus had just come off of 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, worshiping, communing with his father. He was physically exhausted, but he was spiritually recharged. We need to understand that the only way that we are going to have a distaste for sin is if we love Jesus more than sin. And we're not gonna love Jesus if we're not spending time with Jesus for not worshiping Jesus, for not spending time at his feet. We have to make sure that we're cultivating a deeper intimacy with Christ. That is the only way that sin will become disgusting to us. You know, a third thing, we need to deploy extra defenses when we're feeling especially vulnerable. We need to make sure to have our guard up in those moments when we're feeling especially vulnerable. It's amazing how many Christ followers put themselves right in the middle of temptation and think they're going to be victorious. When you're training a puppy and you're trying to teach a puppy not to grab your shoes and chew them up, is the smart thing to do when you're gone for eight hours to lock them up in your mudroom filled with shoes and you don't put them in a crate and you say, don't eat the shoes and lock them in there? Is that, what's going to happen to your shoes? They're going to be destroyed, right? Because I don't care how strong the puppy wants that. The puppy's going to go for the shoes, right? But how many Christians plant ourselves in the middle of temptation? And we say, don't give in to temptation. And it's everywhere around us. That's just stupid. This is stupid. Instead of getting close to the line of temptation, we need to run away from the line and say, what are the extra measures I need to put into my life? As I go through these last two, Sam can come up and we'll transition into a, a moment of worship. But, but here's, a, here's a fourth one. Sin thrives in solitude and secrecy. Sin thrives in solitude and secrecy. We need each other. We need accountability. We need transparency. Maybe you're out there and you're thinking, there's a temptation I've given into time and time again. I've never had victory. And then I'd ask you, have you ever... Really sought accountability or mentorship in that? No, I I can never share that. Well, then you're not going to have victory. Sin thrives in silence and secrecy. Don't keep trying to carry that baggage yourself. We bear one another's burdens. We're there where the stronger brother helps the weaker brother to point out the sin to pull them back. We need each other. And here's our last thing: run to Jesus, time and time again. Run to the Father, time and time again. What does it say in Hebrews 4? Whenever you're feeling tempted, draw near to the throne of grace in the moment of your need to find the grace and the power that you need. We need to go to Jesus and say, I'm weak. I can't do this alone. Coach, I need help. I wanna give in right now to temptation. I'm not strong enough. Be my strength. And when we do that with a heart of humility, Jesus says he'll never turn us away. Go to Jesus time and time again. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we recognize that we are in a spiritual battle every single day. And the crazy thing is, it's easy for us to forget that because when we look around, we don't always see the evidence of that warfare, but it's there, it's there. It's deep within our hearts. It's a battle for our spirit. It's a battle for our joy. It's a battle for our obedience. And Father, the enemy loves to throw those flaming darts of temptation right towards our heart, but I just pray that we implement a winning battle plan by trusting fully in your son and following his example. Father, we don't want to be a church that's filled with secret sin. Help us to be transparent. Help us to invite accountability into our lives and help us to take seriously our calling to run our spiritual race with endurance. Give us the strength through your son. In Jesus' name, amen.